Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part one of episode number 92 of my 16 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part one of episode number 92 of my 16 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is, I'm just going to be a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd, and each week with this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s with a show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personal analysis on the original song, which will include the chords, billing, lyrics, and the second part of the show, dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians in the track, whether that be the session musicians or the band members themselves, history behind the artists that record the song and the songwriter that wrote it, plus the person that produced it, um, what studio the song was recorded at, where that studio was located at, and the label the song was released on, where that label was located at, and the year and month it was released, and the history behind the label that released the song, and where that, and also the peak position the song made up originally on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. All that is in the second part of the show. Moving on, let's, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? Okay, so since last week we did a song from the late 60s, let's go back to the early 60s and did a song that very much represented what was going on in popular music in America as far as what was going on before the Beatles came to America in the earlier part of the decade. And, uh, you know, just that very innocent, very cookie-cutter, very sweet time frame of music where nobody really dared to do anything that was somewhat, you know, controversial or somewhat, you know, not appropriate. But let me tell you something about this song. You know, the song is by no means like a mind-blowingly, amazingly good song. You know, there isn't any specific wow factor with this specific song. But regardless of all that, it's a nice song that's super simple, nothing too complicated about this song at all. And more importantly, it's super easy to listen to and just one that, while it might not be soulful, um, again, this is a pretty white pop song. The message of the song is heartfelt and sincere and very relatable, especially if you're a guy. And unlike last week's song, this song is anything but controversial. And again, it very much represents the the climate of popular music in the early 60s, back when things were very innocent and, you know, back when, you know, members of our society were very compliant to what, you know, what was happening, you know, as far as, you know, rock and roll trying to clean itself up from its dirty image it presented itself in the late 50s but anyways um we'll get more into that in the next week's episode of this podcast when we talk about the history behind this artist but um before that let's dive into this week's song okay so it was recorded in june of 1962 and released in december of that year it's by an artist named ricky nelson it's called it's up to you It's up, it's up to you. 
Cause I've done everything I can I hope, I hope that, you that you Will say that I'm your loving man Make up, make up your mind, your mind And do wow. what you yeah, so that's a very sort of innocent, you know, again, like a nice, fun song, you know, super easy to listen to. But, you know, it, it's one of those songs that it, it's really, it's actually pretty good, you know, but, you know, it's definitely not the kind of song you want to listen to if you're into more of the R&B of the 60s or the rock, the hard rock of the 60s. But it's still a pretty nice song to listen to but there's a lot of interesting things about this song as far as the arrangement is concerned and let's get into that let's talk about what makes this song so good both musically and lyrically um but first let's talk about the music okay so as far as the song's music is concerned i mean for starters um the chord progression isn't really all that interesting you know, but again, I feel like even though the song doesn't have the most interesting chord changes in the planet, I mean, it uses a lot of cliche chord changes that, you know, that were very much apparent in popular music at this time in early 60s. I feel like the song very much represents, you know, what, where were we at as far as harmony was concerned in the early 60s. I mean, several songs in the early 60s had this one six four five one six two five chord progression. And, uh, you know, and it and it would take a take us a while, you know, to sort of shake things up and try to try some alternate chord changes. You know, I mean, Beatles did a lot to change that. But there are some earlier writers like Jerry Goffin and Carol King and some Brill Building songwriters also helped, you know, uh, change that as well. But outside of that, there's a lot of cliche chord changes. And this is one of the songs that has one of those cliche chord changes. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's basically, I mean, the your, it's your basic one, six, four or five and the most, m- most of the song. But then there's a couple of times where it kind of strays away from that. Like, for example, um, you know, it goes, you know, it's your one, six, four, five most of the time. But in the intro, it does this really cool thing where it basically starts with the one and then it goes to this diminished chord, which sounds like it's a substitute for the major three chord. And then it goes to the, to the four and the five. And that's really cool because you only hear that in the song once. And that's it. That's the only time where they do that. But again, it's just a nice little break from the song's kind of repetitive chord progression. And at the end of each cycle, you know, where he kind of goes, make up your mind, do what you want to do. When he goes to that part of the song, he does this really cool thing where instead of going to the A, the five, he goes to the four minor after the major four chord. And that's really cool. Um, That's definitely a a good change up from the song sort of repetitive chord changes. Um, You know, and then it goes to that one to five and then one, four, one, five. And then it just the song starts back up again. Um, And it does this for a while. But the only time where you get a little bit of a break from that, and it's not that much of a break, but still, again, a break, is when he gets to the song's bridge. And that's when it does this thing where it goes back and forth between the five and the one, and the five and the one, and then it ends on a major two-five turnaround. And again, that's... uh, it's nothing that's nothing too crazy it's been done before a million times uh but again it's just i the the main thing 
point I want to stress to you guys about this part of the song is that the chord changes aren't what makes a song interesting, you know, because I, you know, these chord changes have been used before in a bunch of different songs where the song was written and, you know, but again, I feel like that this song represents the climate is where we are as far as chord changes were concerned at this time. I mean, we haven't gotten too advanced yet, but we will be in a couple of years after the song has been recorded. So again, I don't think the song, as far as the chord progression is going to, I don't think it's the most innovative, most interesting part of the song. But what is pretty cool and pretty innovative and pretty interesting, you know, as far as the song is concerned, is the arrangement of the song, the instrumentation. There's a lot of really cool things in the song as far as instrumentation is concerned that's just awesome. And yes, there's a couple of subtle things that vary up the chord progression, but it's very much repetitive throughout the whole song. You know, it's your basic AABA song, you know, and then there's a little solo and that's it. And then it just vamps on the one six at the end. But anyways, um, let's get to the song's arrangement because that's when it really gets interesting. Okay. So the first thing I want to point out to you guys about what makes the song so compelling as far as the arrangement is concerned are those somewhat mariachi horn slash trumpets. And I got to be honest with you, this was this was that this was in a time period of music when horns were pretty prevalent in pop music. But most of the time when you heard a, when you heard a song with horns on it, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, it, the horns are just blaring in your face and just really, really there as far as a song's chord changes as the far as song's arrangement. It's just the horns are really right in your face and it's especially apparent in songs by Leslie Gore. You know, her first two hits, She Used to Cry, It's My Party, the horns are just really right there, you know. And I feel like with this particular song, the swarns kind of sound a little mariachi, a little Mexican, but as far as how what kind of role they play in the song's arrangement, they're you know they're not blaring in your face or extremely loud. They're simply there as sort of a subtle paintbrush to give the song's arrangement a really cool color to it, and they're almost there as sort of kind of in the background. You know, they're not necessarily there as the forefront of the song's arrangement. You know, and just, you know, it, it's interesting because, again, the horns are not really there as sort of the, the forefront of the song. They're just kind of in the background, you know, and that's what's so cool about it is that, you know, this is one of those songs. The horns were not just, you know, blaring in your face or just sort of there as sort of a nice little addition to the song, but not the it wasn't exactly the forefront of the song. But another really cool arrangement characteristic, and this is something kind of interesting, too. Notice how when you listen to the song, the bass is really loud and up in front. And I must say that the bass player that played on this song is arguably one of the most recognizable bass players in rock and roll history. Even though he isn't the most well-known, I mean, if I told you his name, and I will do that in next week's episode of this podcast, you probably won't know who the heck this person is, especially if you're a millennial. And the reason for this is because he was a very fortunate enough to have played on some records where his bass part was given lots of compression and mixing away so that way his playing was very loud and up in front and his bass really cut through the mix quite well so everyone can hear his playing you didn't have to turn up the bass frequencies on your stereo system to hear his playing and the reason why this is so cool is because 90% of the bass players of this exact same time frame unless you're talking like instrumental music you know where basically all the bass players are really up in front and they were using a pick and they were mixed very loudly but aside from that um you know in this time frame you know 
in rock and roll history. And for, you know, unfortunately, you know, most bass players didn't have the luxury of their parts being mixed and recorded very loudly. So that's why on so many of these records, especially in the early '60s, it's so difficult to hear the bass because so many bass players are still, first of all, still using stand-up basses and not electric basses, and many mixing engineers and producers still felt like the bass wasn't the most important element of the song. Heck, even a lot of Motown records, the bass is pretty difficult to hear. And this particular bass player, on the other hand, he was very fortunate enough to where on almost every single record he played on, he was playing is shined so profusely that you could spot his bass playing from a mile away when you listen to his records that he played on. And, you know, that's there, there's something to be said about that because he was kind of a precursor to, you know, making sure that the bass was, again, like uh, in the forefront and making sure that the bass was really an important part of the song at a time when when the average record you heard on Top 40 Radio and AM Radio, you couldn't really hear the bass that well. That's because, again, most bass players are still using upright stand-up acoustic basses. They weren't using electric basses. And two, you know, other things are more important as far as the song's arrangements, such as the backup singers and the strings and some and the guitars and other parts of the song were more important than the bass. And also, one other really interesting thing I want to point out to you about the song's arrangement is the guitar solo on the on this track. And you might be thinking. What's so cool about that? Okay, guitar solo? I mean, I've heard it before. I mean, we hear guitar solos all the time, you know? But here's the thing. But let me explain to you about what makes this so cool. Because on the surface, if, especially if you're a classic rock fan, you might think, like, that's nothing compared to what I've heard before. But let me just explain to you something and give you context as far as what was going on in popular music at this specific time frame in the early 60s. Okay, so in, in the early 60s, guitar solos weren't really all over the place in pop music. In fact, as music became more sophisticated, the fancy lead guitar work of guys like Chuck Berry and Dwayne Eddy and guys that were really, really good at it in the late 50s, you know, th that's those sort of really wild and crazy guitar solos are starting to go away for more fancy arrangements incorporating strings and horns and backup singers and look it i mean yes there were exceptions to this rule i mean you know instrumental music didn't have really really good lead guitar work but other than that in pop music you didn't really hear that many songs with guitar solos i mean they were just kind of like they were kind of neglected i mean people didn't really think to include guitar solos in pop songs at this time so in this earlier period of pop music like 61 62 63 because of that there weren't too many songs on top 40 radio that had really intricately guitar solos on them but the biggest exception to this would be the records put out by the specific artist the guitar solos done on this record using his mainly guitar player were really ahead of their time and would predate their really wild and crazy lead guitar solos done by the likes of guys like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and some other caps as well. And they added a special flavor to his records that was missing from a lot of other teen idols in his class because trust me, <laughs> all the other teen idols at this time, they did not have a designated lead guitar player in their records. It was all backup singers and strings and you know other things other than the lead guitar. The lead guitar was not the most important part of their songs, but this guy had the lead guitar in the forefront of his arrangements of his tunes, and that's what made him, him so cool. But even though in this particular song, the solo is short, I think it's only about eight bars long, it's very complicated and it would contain things lead guitar players would use 
in solos in many classic rock songs after the song was recorded, like in the late 60s, early 70s. And also, one other really interesting thing about this arrangement of the song is the backup vocals done by an unnamed male backup group. Now, if you're wondering why this song, why this is so interesting, it, it seems like the sound of this particular artist was ultimately patterned after another then-current artist who had a very similar sound and look, but except he was going for more of a sex appeal, and this particular artist was going for more of a squeaky clean teen idol approach, and this artist was Elvis Presley. And in next week's episode, we'll talk more about the comparisons between Elvis's career and this particular artist's career in the next episode of this podcast. But... Um, you know, you, you can definitely hear the similarities between uh, his backup singers on this song, Ricky Nelson, and the backup singers that Elvis Presley was using on his records are being written and recorded at the exact same time. But we'll get into that more in the next week's episode of this podcast. But now let's get to the song's lyrics. Moving on, let's talk about the song's lyrics, because what makes a song so good is definitely lyrics, you know, and what makes the lyrics so good is just how relatable they are, and trust me, if you're a guy listening to this podcast and you've ever had a crush on a girl, this song is for you, because the song perfectly captures the uncertainty one feels when a guy first falls in love with a girl, and how in the early stages he does not know if she feels the same for him, in the end he decides to leave it all out there for her and see if she takes the bait and if she also reciprocates the love and affection he has for her. And I know this lyrical plotline seems PG and just corny and cliche, but you have to keep in mind the climate of media censorship at this time the song was written and recorded. And trust me, it was everywhere, not just in popular music, but also on TV shows as well. I mean, songs that were about topics that were considered lewd and lascivious, such as sex and drugs, which the inclusion of alcohol, drinking songs were notable exceptions to this rule. I mean, you could write a song about drinking, you can still get some airplay. But anyways, um, songs about things of that nature were ultimately banned from any radio stations that would play songs that would ultimately wind up making in the top 40 Billboard Hot 100 charts. And basically, you know, if you wrote a song about sex and drugs, you know, it wouldn't get airplay on any AM radio station at the time, including all the major ones that had their own specific charts, you know, that would later add up to making the charts nationally in the Billboard Hot 100 charts. And this includes all the top 40 stations. I mean, 50 plus years ago, it wasn't like today where... Artists could write and sing about whatever they wanted to write and sing about without getting in trouble just as long as they put the explicit content warning label on the song. I mean, back then there was no such thing as that. So all songwriters and singers and producers had to stick with clean and innocent song topics. So that way they couldn't get in any trouble at this time. You know, especially in the early 60s when things seemed to be rather innocent and nobody's really trying to push the envelope as far as, you know, song topics was concerned at this time. But anyways, the song's concept of the guy basically giving the girl the choice of either dumping him or embracing him is something that I'm sure many guys face at this time. And it could still happen today with many young guys. But even though the lyrics seem to seem okay and fine to a casual listener there is an underlying subtext with the song's lyrics that makes the guys this guy in this song 
seem kind of desperate and needy as he seems seems like he is pressuring the girl to make a decision whether or not to date him or not. I mean, he does give off that kind of a vibe in the song. But he also makes it very clear that he is definitely interested in her, but we also have no idea if she is interested in him or not. So again, I've, I've talked about this before in many, many podcasts. Since the song leaves things kind of open-ended at the end, the girl could respond back and write an answer song, you know, in response to, you know, him just kind of leaving things open-ended and him, you know, seeing whether or not this girl likes him or not. And basically, the girl could respond back saying, I'm not interested or I do want to date you. I mean, we have no idea how she feels as all songs are basically like, you know, one sided. They're they're told from a one sided point of view as far as him communicating to her. We don't really know exactly how she feels. But again, like she could write a whole answer song and let us know that. But again, it's interesting how, you know, in this song, he's kind of just like, okay, so I'm I'm interested in you. I really, really like like you but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pressure you to make any decisions i'm just gonna leave it up to you as whether or not you want to date me or not i'm gonna let you decide and there's been a couple other songs with this kind of subject matter in the early 60s notably one of them was i'll leave it all up to you by dealing grace but again this is one of those songs that you know um you know, talks about that sort of thing where he's kind of leaving it up to her as to whether or not uh, she wants to take the bait or not. And uh, basically, you know, again, it's like it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it, he, he, he feels like he's putting a lot of pressure on her, you know, to make a decision. And again, this is, you know, and th- I'm not really sure because I, I never interviewed the guy who wrote the song, but I feel like, you know, this song, you know, he's giving off that kind of a desperate needy vibe and that's not necessarily a good thing, but it's something you wouldn't even really think about if you just casually listen to the song and you just like, you know, listen to it without even really thinking about what the song is about lyrically. So that concludes part one of episode number 92 of my sexy music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you liked my analysis in this week's song and you thought it was cool and interesting, you never heard this song before and you're around my age, and this is like the first time you're ever hearing it, um, you can email me at samltwillieicloud.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, iHeartOldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Now, also, as per usual, with the things are in the description of each episode of this podcast, so you can check out, just in case you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you have no idea like what's included with this, including the show, um, you, can, you can check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far including some ones I've talked about in interview episodes. Um, there you'll be able to find all of them. And, uh, you know, it's going to be really, really cool if you do that because there, then you'll be able to figure out uh, exactly what kind of music I talk about on my show, just in case you're listening to the show for the first time. You have no idea what the show is about as far as what kind of music I talk about in here. And without, when you listen to this play, those playlists, That'll give you a good idea for the kind of songs to talk about in the show, and hopefully they'll give you some ideas for what kind of music I should talk about next on my show that I haven't yet. And if that does, you can email those ideas to me at samltwilliatcloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram and send me those ideas as well. Also, if you want to continue to support this podcast other than listening to it, you can check out the official Redbubble merchandise store for the show. There you'll be able to find the super cool uh, logo that is attached to all these really neat merchandise items and 
I set up the store myself. I didn't design the logo, but I came up with the logo. It's basically the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking tight. I want my name and podcast in the bottom. Um, there you'll be. It's it's a really cool um, thing that you should check out. Um, may, hopefully you'll buy something from there, but if not, that's okay. I love it if you could at least give me some feedback on the price of each item in the store and the logo itself. And you can do that by emailing me at samltwilliamicloud.com. Also, a couple really cool announcements before I close out this episode of this podcast. I'm going to be releasing an EP of brand new original music this year, um, sometime in May, June. Uh, I haven't quite figured out ex- the exact release date yet, but for any of you listeners who are curious to check out more of my original music and you want to hear what my stuff sounds like, well, um, I'm going to be putting on EP um, sometime uh, this year, and uh, I'll let you guys know when I have the release date finalized for that, and I'll let you guys know when my release show is for that, I'll, you know, because all of it's in the works right now, nothing's for certain as of right now, but I'll definitely keep you posted on that. Also, there's one more thing that's in the description of this episode of this podcast, and this is new. This is something I've never done before, but this is mainly for you guys. Um, I recently came across this really cool podcast analytical database it's an it's an online one it's called podtrack and uh they provided me with a super dope survey link that you guys can fill out at your earliest convenience and there you'll be able to basically you know it's a really quick five minute survey all it takes is just five minutes you just fill it out and you complete all the answers and then what's that what's going to what's going to happen is that once you fill out the survey and complete the answers then i'll be able to see more uh information about you guys who listen to this podcast randomly i'll be able to find out more about you you know just from looking from the data that you guys enter in the survey that i'll be able to see once you guys complete uh the survey and submit it um i would love it if you can fill it out the link to that survey is in the description of this episode of this podcast and i might do it next week too but basically you can go on there and you can fill it fill it out and you can let me know exactly how you discover this podcast how old are you what are your musical interests i mean it's a you know it's a pretty good survey that will basically tell me more information about you guys as far as uh, my listeners is concerned and uh you know please fill it out whenever you can and that'll definitely help me out because that'll tell me a lot more about you guys as far as uh, my as far as you, my listeners is concerned and uh yeah so um please fill it out whenever you can and uh yeah so By the way, I have my next interview slated for this episode of this podcast, but I'll wait until closer to episode 100 before I announce it officially. But I do have another guy interested in doing an interview for this podcast, and that'll be for episode 100. But I'll keep you guys, you know, I'll I'll announce it a little bit later on once I get closer to episode 100. And then I'll let you guys know who the next interview episode will be. But anyway, so I'm Sam Williamson. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. And until next week, please keep things groovy.